Well, once upon a time, you dressed so fine, you threw the bums a dime in your prime, didn't you? People called and said, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. But you thought they were all just kidding you. You used to laugh about everyone that was hanging out. But now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging for your next meal. So how does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home, with no direction, like a complete unknown, just like a rolling stone? The greatest rock song of all time, uh, not my opinion, the opinion of Rolling Stone magazine, uh, by the greatest American lyricist of all time, no dispute from anybody who's sane. But also the state that Israel finds herself in this text. I mean, this really is a very poignant picture of what we have been told in the first two chapters of Lamentations, where Israel has been compared to a royal wife and a mother uh, who had at one point a table full of children, was dressed in the finery that comes with her royalty. But now in our text, we find this former princess is now widowed and childless, and her table is empty. I mean, the Holy Land at this point has been left decimated. Uh, Most everyone of note of any kind of prestige is gone and been taken to Babylon. Uh, The temple has been torn down, but not before being utterly defiled by the, the captors of Israel, Babylon. The streets are empty, save for the few bodies that didn't get picked up yet along the way. And those who do remain, the few, the food supply is so low that they are literally scrounging through the ash heaps to find what may be left to eat. I mean, this is what has become of God's bride, the apple of God's eye. I mean, it's in the midst of this bleak midwinter that we hear this lone voice in chapter 3 of Lamentations crying out, Singing, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And that juxtaposition between the actual scene that Israel is experiencing, the life they're actually living, and the lyrics of this particular confession, they seem so contrary that it almost feels, you know, psychologically impossible to hold them together. I mean, how is it that you can look out at that kind of devastation and then voice the words, great is God's faithfulness, morning by morning? I mean, the hymn that we have come to know and love, great is thy faithfulness, obviously based on this text. When do we normally sing this? Uh, You know, at 50th wedding anniversaries, we sing this song. At building dedications, when churches finally get to a point where they've, you know, built a, a sanctuary, maybe uh, uh, at some sort of receptions, uh, you know, all these sort of institutional high points is when we voice the songs of God's faithfulness. But notice its original setting uh, is not at a high point in Israel's existence. It's in the midst of this utter devastation and ruin with no seeming hope on the horizon. And we hear, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I I see, (laughs) which is awfully odd when what we see in this text doesn't look 
like mercy at all, at least not by sight. So how does that work? I mean, how can it work? How do you live in a tension like this? Uh, Because whether you know it or not, you are going to live in this tension. Uh, Most of you have lived long enough to where you know this already. Some of you are so young, you're blissfully unaware that this is what the Christian life really looks like when it comes down to it. I mean, how can we suffer in this life knowing that God really does ordain whatsoever comes to pass and does have the power to stop what is happening to us now that seems to be robbing our life of all that is good and true and beautiful? How can we know that God is able and doesn't and still say and proclaim that God is good in the midst of our suffering? And that's a question you should be at least willing to ask, but to ask it for real, not in some sort of pious uh, Christian movie kind of asking sort of way where you know at the end of the, the, the show the marriage is going to get reconciled and the football team is going to win, uh, but in the kind of the way that the Bible asks it, where there is no uh, grand victory at least on the horizon of Israel's future in this text. I mean, have you ever had the guts to complain to God? That doesn't sound spiritual. I mean, I learned really early from Anne of Green Gables, you know, to despair is to turn your back on God. Uh, But the book of Lamentations uh, uh, spits in the face of that theology. I mean, they're voicing their despair. And not only are they voicing it, it's recorded and saved and set before us as something that is right and good and true. So have you ever complained to God? I don't mean have you ever complained about God. I've pastored long enough to know that you all have and often do. But that is different than what's happening in texts like this or in a third of all of the Psalms where where those who believe in the God of all creation and he's their God, their Savior, they voice a complaint to him about what is actually happening in their lives concerning uh, that doesn't seem to fit with who he says he is to them and for them. But this book does that. Our poet does that. He expresses his heartache and his frustration, his hopelessness, which, again, doesn't seem uh, like a pious thing to do. But he voices his lack of faith and his utter lack of understanding concerning what God is doing and why he's doing it now and in this way. But in the midst of it, oddly, dead center, it also gives us one of the most magnificent confessions concerning God's tenderness and care in all of Scripture. I mean, it's a strange book if you haven't read through it. And seemingly out of nowhere, we get this cry about God's faithfulness and his tender mercies and his kindness. So let's try at least uh, with the time we have this morning to see how those two live together in this book and ultimately how they live together in our lives as Christians. And I want us first to see it under the man of affliction, the man of affliction. You see in these first 18 verses, uh, uh, a, a particular man is speaking his complaint. If you've read the first two chapters, if you're familiar with them, you'll notice that our book starts out with Israel viewed, personified, as a woman. Uh, And so her complaint has been coming in the feminine voice uh, and the whole nation really has been giving voice to their concerns about God. We have this woman weeping and we are told she's identified as daughter Zion and all of her pain and misery. But in chapter three, instead of that feminine voice concerning the whole nation, our text shifts 
to a singular voice, and it's a man. Uh, It's almost as if this one man is taking on and giving voice to the whole of the nation suffering on their behalf. It's almost as if he is suffering in himself all that the city has suffered corporately. And his poem, as we read it, uh, maybe uh, it it should have gotten through to you. It's pretty repetitive concerning at least the the, the tone uh, and the temperament of it. Uh, It is a poem of defeat. At least those first 18 verses are. Uh, And in those first 18 verses, he's being defeated by some nameless enemy. We have a hunch who it is, but he doesn't tell us for 18 verses. He just simply tells us, this one, this enemy has taken his rod of wrath against me. He says, he's made me a home, but my abode is in the darkness. It's so dark, he says, it's as if I'm in the grave already where those who have gone down into Sheol have been from long ago. It says this enemy uh, is a stonemason who builds this great fortress around him, but not to protect him, but to hem him in. He says he's chained me like, like a prisoner, like a jailer and a sadistic master who intentionally makes the paths he walks crooked. But not only are they crooked, he makes them walk them only and always in the dark. The enemy is ferocious, he says, like a wild animal, like a bear and like a lion. He says, he he has me turn aside so that he can devour me. He's an archer, you'll notice, who shoots his arrows with such precision that he pierces them in the kidneys, which means he's shooting as our lone voice is running the opposite way. He gets shot in the back. But what's interesting, of course, in the Hebrew, we have this a bit in English, right? You know, uh, you've been pierced to the heart, right? Uh, It's both, yeah, and, you know, he's using it as an actual, but also as a metaphorical reality, you know, as in, you know, the words of the prophet John Bon Jovi, shot to the heart. Uh, We can see this. One, that would be a fatal wound if it was in the war, Uh, but it's also metaphorically we feel the pain. Well, in the, the Hebrew mindset, the kidneys are the seed of all the emotions, and he says, he's broken me emotionally in every possible way. And it culminates with the most all-encompassing confession of misery that I think we can find in Scripture. He says, I am bereft of peace. I have forgotten happiness. I mean, just think of how dark the situation is. He says, I don't even want to go on. All hope is gone. And again, that enemy is unnamed until it's finally confirmed in verse 18 when he puts a name to this one who has been hunting him down like this. Who is the one behind this seemingly brutal face? He says, Yahweh has done this. He uses the covenant name of God by which God has named himself over the people, and he says, he's done this to us. The one who has passed before us and told us all the good he was going to do has been the one that's treated me in this particular way. If you look at the language of chapter 3, it really is an utter undoing of Psalm 23. Instead of the Lord, my shepherd, the Lord has become my afflictor in this text. Instead of his rod and his staff comforting him, he says his rod of wrath has been brought against me. Instead of lying in green pastures, he lies in the outer and utter darkness. He is walled up in a prison. Instead of paths of righteousness for his namesake, he gets a crooked path in the dark. Instead of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, which he will pass through, he lies down and makes his home in the shadow of death. 
Instead of a table in the midst of his enemies, the enemy set a table in their midst while God's people eat from the trash heaps. And goodness and mercy, instead of pursuing, seem to have fled the scene altogether. Even to remember God, according to our text, is a suffering for this man. He says, when I think of it, it's like wormwood and gall to me. When I think of the past, it's all dark now. And then, after all of that, he starts singing. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And we either have to think he's crazy, which, I mean, it feels that way. (laughs) That's a sharp left turn in the middle of that. Or there's something happening here that he can see. And so the next thing I would like us to see in our text as we go from 19 and following is the merciful God of affliction. The merciful God of affliction. He has just remembered in verses 19 and 20 the painful circumstances and how it is crushing him. When he looks around, he says that he sees no hope, only wormwood and gall. But he remembers, interestingly, another way of seeing. Not merely what he sees with his eyes. The situation is clearly bad. And it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better anytime soon. But something has recalled him to see in another way. Through these eyes of faith, if you will. Notice, he says, this I call to mind. It's not the calling of something to mind. It's not the remembering act itself that brings him relief and this testimony of God's mercy. It's exactly what he calls to mind. A very specific thing that he brings into his, uh, into his memory. It's not what he can see, but it's what he knows about the character of Yahweh. That's all he has. Yes, the same Yahweh that now afflicts him. He knows something about his character that moves him to this faint spark of hope in the midst of his darkest hour. And it's this simple thing that Yahweh's character is firm. That God is who he is. And that never changes. He's always the same. And notice, he's waited 18 verses to speak that name Yahweh. And it calls to mind where that name comes from and how we were introduced to him, how he introduced himself to the nation. I am the Lord, the Lord. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God himself, you'll notice, when he introduces himself, when he wants to let you know who he is, he highlights his mercy That's not something, you know, that pastors do just to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's something that God does. When God wants you to know who he is, he highlights, he puts the weight on, he testifies concerning the fact that he is a God that is bent toward mercy and kindness. Yes, he's just. Surely he is. This is what's happening to Israel. Clearly he's just. But notice what he says, even when he's introducing himself, I am slow to get there. I'm very slow when it comes to displaying my anger, but I am quick in showing mercy. God advertises, people of God, he advertises his love scripturally differently than he advertises his justice. It's not that God isn't just. It's not that God isn't a God of wrath. Surely those things exist, but that is not where he puts his finger on the scale concerning how he wants you to conceive of him. 
and come to know him. He is a God who is merciful. A mercy that's new every morning, a mercy that never fails, a mercy that's eternal. And though there is no evidence of such to our sufferer at the present, though he can't look and say, oh, I see God's mercy, look what's happening over here, he knows by the name who God is, what he's done in the past, what his character is. And that is the only hope he has. One Christian author uh, writes in one of his essays, uh, he's a a British um, uh, fiction writer for the most part, but he's testifying in in this particular essay about an all-night argument that he'd had with his wife that did not end well. I'm sure something that's never happened with any of you. But he decided that he was going to go nurse his hurts uh, over a cappuccino at the local cafe where they lived. He says as he sat there, the barista put on a piece of music that he happened to know very well, Mozart's clarinet concerto. And he says as he was sitting there kind of in his misery and the darkness of what was at home, he said the middle movement began to play, and he says this, It offers a strong and absolutely calm rejoicing, but it does not pretend that there is no sorrow. On the contrary, it sounds as if it comes from the world where sorrow is perfectly ordinary and there's still more to be said. I've heard it a lot of times, but this time it felt like news. It said, everything you fear is true. And yet, and yet, everything you have done wrong, you have really done wrong. And yet, and yet, he says, the world is whiter than you fear it is. Listen and let yourself count just a little bit on a calm that you do not have to be able to make for yourself. Because here it is freely offered. In our text, in verse 22, some of the older manuscripts read this way. The unfailing love of Yahweh. That's why we're not finished off. For his compassions have not reached their limit. Or maybe in your King James. Therefore, we are not consumed. So notice, because of his love, we are not finished off. Because his compassions haven't reached their limits. So what is the author saying? He's basically saying, even the fact that I have the ability to sit here and complain, to voice my hurt to God, to suffer in this way, shows that God hasn't fully given up on me yet. Right? If he got everything he deserved, it would all be over. There would be no more voice of complaint. God would have uh, finished the sentence, if you will. And so because of that, he sees that the underlying reality of God, his mercy still exists because he still exists. Because God hasn't put the final nail in the coffin. And all he says to the God of the covenant from that moment on is this. I mean, listen to this prayer, probably one we don't get in our our books. He says, remember my afflictions. Full stop. Not even come and rescue me, uh, not uh, remember 
the past, how I've been faithful, not to how much I've served you. But he simply says, see my suffering. Why? Because he knows that God is bent toward mercy. Because God is brokenhearted to the brokenhearted. And so all he cries to God about is, watch and see the suffering I'm going through. Because he believes in the consistency of God's character. That he will come and he will rescue. That God's mercy will triumph over judgment. And so I want us to see finally this morning the afflicted God's mercy. To our suffering man, this man of affliction in our text, comes this hope through the character of God. He is a God of mercy. But if that's true, dear Christian, if that's true, how much more hope do you have at present? How much more of a testimony concerning God's mercy do you have in your life because of what we have witnessed? We've seen in action what God means by this reality. I am a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We have seen it in action because the God who afflicts in this text became the God who was afflicted for our sake. He has become the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, of whom we can truly say, there was never grief like his. There is no suffering that matches the suffering of our Savior. I mean, was there ever grief like his? This is a God, the God to whom and through whom and for whom are all things who comes into his creation not just to join our sorrows not to just come into a world as Calvin called it that is no more than a constant death but to bear our sorrows to endure the suffering that we deserve to its full to be struck you'll notice With the rod of God's fury, to be torn apart as if by a wild animal, to be cast into outer darkness, to be so utterly cast away that he can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But to do such as one who is wholly innocent, something Israel can't say, as much as they can complain about their situation, The complaint always stops short because they were told over and over by the prophets, this is what's going to come if something doesn't change in you. But that can't be said of our Savior. Yes, Israel mourns, but she mourns deep down knowing she deserves it. But our Lord is truly one who experienced the massacre of the innocents. And it all takes place by the hand of God. His father. He acts out this fierce act of justice that at one level is so unjust against the one who it's born by. And all because God is committed to his mercy. He's committed to himself. He's a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He is true to his name, and because he's true to his name, he is faithful to his people. He loves his people so much 
that not only does he call them the apple of his eye, but he literally touches the apple of his own eye in sending his son and sacrificing him on our behalf, something so much more dear and precious because he finds you that precious so that you and I would not be cut off from mercy. He cuts off his own son in our stead. That same faithfulness couples his tender mercies with his commitment to justice as he raises our Lord from the dead never to die again. And this is now then our story. And as beautiful it is, you'll notice that night life's not always that beautiful. <laughs> that the same God sometimes serves us up things that we don't understand and we don't want and we don't understand why he doesn't relent from giving us these kind of things. And the bottom line is your life is going to land here one way or another in this text. And what are you going to believe? You're either going to say that God is unfair and unkind and no longer good, or you're going to say, though I can't see you, though I don't understand it, I know this because I see the cross, that you are a God committed to mercy and that your mercy will triumph over judgment. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, bridge players tell us that there must be some money on the game or else people won't take it seriously. Not Presbyterians, of course. Apparently, it's like that. Your bid for God or no God, for a good God or the cosmic sadist, for eternal life or non-entity. He says it will not be serious if nothing much is staked on it. And you will never discover how serious it was until the stakes are raised horribly high. Until that you find that you are not playing for counters or sixpence, but for every penny you have in the world. Nothing less will shake a man, or at any rate, shake a man like me. Out of his merely verbal thinking and merely notional beliefs, he has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only torture will bring out the truth. Only under torture does he discover it himself. And here's his punchline. You discover this. I need Christ, not something that resembles him. Notice our story in Lamentations does not do an about face here. He calls to mind God's mercy, but it doesn't end like our fairy tale endings. He is not delivered, at least not on this day. But as we look to the cross and we behold the depths of God's mercy and the depths of his faithfulness, we can know this, that deliverance will come because it has come in the person of his son. There will be a happy ending. And I don't know about your future or even my own, and I don't know what comes next. But I do know that tomorrow morning, the Lord doesn't return. The sun will rise, and with it, a fresh batch of God's mercy will rise with it to meet you in that day. A mercy that is greater than all your sin and all of your suffering. A mercy that has and will triumph over justice. And God calls you this morning to believe that and to put your hope there in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are who you are. And Lord, while we don't always fully understand you, or maybe better yet, we rarely understand the depths of you, we see the cross. And Lord, that tells us all that we need to know.
you are good and kind and merciful, and you really do want what's best for us. Lord, may we put our eyes there and see Christ now ruling and reigning on our behalf. And may the circumstances that we currently experience become lesser and weaker in light of this. May you give us the grace to endure. May we not lose faith or hope in the midst of trial because we see that you are a God who is committed to our good. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.